Monkeys infected with herpes are invading Florida. We take a look at the list of the longest movies ever made. And then finally, we come face to face with the legendary, infamous Count Dante today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. Yesterday was not a great day though. I was dangerously dehydrated and I think that's what the problem was. And while I was editing it, I don't really think it came across on yesterday's podcast, but I was very, very exhausted mentally. But yeah, that was a fun night. I actually felt like I had run a marathon in my head. Like once I got rehydrated and ate a good meal... I felt so much better, and then I just slept. And I've taken two naps today so far. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with the episode now. This is a story, the first one is a story that popped up in the news just the other day, and I was like, it was one of those stories that simply kept getting more and more ridiculous and frightening at the same time. So, in Florida right now, they're having an issue with these little monkey guys. They're called rhesus monkeys. They're like the little little tiny monkey people. So you're thinking, how did a bunch of monkeys show up in Florida? And there are a bunch. Right now there's about 300 of them, and that's fairly low. In 1938, there was a tour boat operator by the name of Colonel Tui. Not his real name. He wasn't really a colonel, but that was his nickname. And there's an area in Florida called Silver State Park. And it's a really big park, like a national park. It's like 5,000 acres, so it's fairly large. And in the middle of it was an island. There's like a lake. I guess, yeah. Well, obviously, there's like a lake in the middle of the park, and in the middle of the lake, there's an island. And Colonel Tooney thought, you know what? I'm going to have like this Tarzan-themed adventure park on this island. And you can't have Tarzan without monkeys, right? So he imports these six little rhesus monkeys. He drops them off on the island. And within hours, they swam off the island. He didn't know they were really good swimmers. So now he had six monkeys on the mainland of Florida. Colonel Tooney, not to be deterred by defeat, gets another batch of monkeys, six more of them. They also immediately swim off the island into the wilderness of Florida. By the 1980s, there were hundreds of monkeys in the area. And, you know, they're cute. They're little guys hanging out from trees. They're omnivores, so they have a very varied diet, and that makes them more prone to explode in areas that they shouldn't be, because they can kind of eat whatever. Bugs, fruits, berries, whatever. Stuff. Stuff that monkeys can eat. So they're eating all this stuff. They're hanging out. Eventually, the government of Florida was like, okay, we need to get rid of these monkeys. So they began culling them and people could come in and, and capture them. They weren't really necessarily letting them like shoot them out of trees. But you could come in and capture the monkeys. And the monkey population dropped. Between 1984 and 2012, a thousand monkeys were removed from the park. So again, it was a sizable amount. But what happened was in 2012, it got out that the people who were taking the monkeys were selling them to biomedical labs for experimentation. So the public was like, no, like, yeah, we have these monkeys in the middle of this national park. They're not hurting anybody. Leave them be. Because the alternative is them being tested in laboratories. So the government's like, fine, like, whatever. So right now they assume there's around 300 of these monkeys running around Florida. 
And you think, okay, big deal. A bunch of little monkeys running around throwing poop at people. Well, two things. These monkeys aren't afraid of humans. And they look cute, but they can attack you very quickly. They'll rush you very quickly. And a lot of times people will hold out food for them because they look cute. And the monkey will kind of do that little funny monkey walk over and then get aggressive right when it's about to get the food. They're, they're fairly aggressive creatures around humans. They will chase you off. They've had to close the state park twice because people have been chased off by the monkeys. Because the danger of these guys isn't that they're just going to scratch you or throw poop at you or, you know, wah, 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 you know make monkey noises at you. Is 30% of them are infected with herpes B. Herpes B in a monkey, it's related to the normal herpes virus in humans. The herpes bee in a monkey is, you know, it's going to have a hard time getting a date on a Saturday night. But when the humans get herpes, it causes your spinal cord and your brain to swell up. It kills you, for the most part, or causes brain damage. They said the chances, there was a quote saying, the chances of contracting it is very, very low, but the consequences of it is very, very high. It's, they compared it to winning the lottery in reverse type of thing. So it's not something that you'll necessarily get every time a monkey touches you, but if you do get it, you're you're you're, you're going to have some serious problems. And herpes B is in fluid. So spit, it's in urine, it's in feces, which they like to throw at you, and even a good scratch from one of them could give you this disease. So it's very very has a lot of transmission factors to it. The monkeys have started to leave the national park the monkeys have begun showing up in houses that are outside the national park, rooting through their garbage, looking for something to eat. The monkeys have actually started uh, migrating to other parts of the state. They've been sighted down to the Florida Keys. They've even been sighted in Puerto Rico. That's a really good swimmer if you can swim from Florida to Puerto Rico. In 1997, a woman was working on a, a monkey in a lab, and she got some monkey juice it doesn't really say what it was she got some monkey it says bodily fluids in her eye and she got herpes being it killed her and that's a that's an interesting thing too you can catch aids through your eyeball it's it's permeable enough that aids infected fluid in your eye will get you it doesn't necessarily have to be through sex if you get it on your face and i think you know where i'm what i'm talking about but you can actually penetrate your eyeball and give you AIDS that way, or in this case, herpes B, because it's just a very, very thin barrier. It goes right into the bloodstream and all that. So with this news getting out, like I said, this article just came out a couple days ago. Will there be renewed efforts to fight the herpes monkeys of Florida? I don't think so. I think even though 30% of these guys have herpes and they're spreading out into the state, they're being seen in areas where they weren't seen before, they're aggressive and they're not afraid of humans i think it'll take a more recent couple of deaths before the public gets behind taking these guys out again because you could say well this woman died in 1997 of this and then the people who want to save the monkeys just has to show a picture of an adorable monkey and go oh so we'll see hopefully this doesn't spread hopefully this is super rare and nobody else dies of it but the bigger the population gets and the more they spread out, the higher the chances that somebody in Florida or anywhere else in the South could get herpes from a monkey. How would you explain that on a date? Be like, I really love you, honey. 
I really want to be with you. I got herpes from a monkey. Now, of course, she probably would know you got herpes from a monkey because your brain would be swelled up outside of your head and you would have a massive spinal column. But let's assume you didn't get that. Let's assume you got herpes being a didn't kill you, but you had a lifelong herpes. How would you explain that on your Tinder profile? Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Our next story is something that popped up on my radar just because the title sounded interesting. I dug a little more into it. I was like, that, that's, it was something I, I didn't know about. What happened was I saw the phrase, the cure for insomnia. That was all that I saw. It is a movie that lasts 87 hours. It takes three days and 15 hours to watch the whole movie. The cure for insomnia at the time in 1987 was the world's longest film. It has no plot. It's just a recording of a guy, a poet named L.D. Groban, reading his 4,080-page poem, A Cure for Insomnia. And then in, in intercut with this guy reading this poem, there are clips of heavy metal music, and then hardcore porn. I mean, that would keep you up, I guess, if you're starting to fall asleep and the heavy metal music is loud enough. I don't know, three days is a long time to stay awake. But yeah, so I was like, that's interesting. Now, the thing is, the movie was shown apparently one time, may have been shown more, but there's no copy of it in, in existence today. You can't get it on DVD. There's no video copy of it or anything. It's just something that people saw and they experienced, and then it went away. You know, and that's interesting because when we have the ability to go back and rewatch stuff, it does in a way kind of diminish it. I remember there used to be a show on television called Cop Rock back in the 80s. I think it was like 86 or something like that, 87. And it was like a, imagine CSI, but a musical is how it was. And I, it only lasted one season. You can get it today on DVD, but back then that was science fiction. You watch the television show and that was it. Unless you had a VCR, which really only more wealthy people had VCRs and was recording stuff even back then. Not wealthy like Bill Gates wealthy, but you had to have a good amount of money. We had a VCR, but I don't think we like were recording stuff off of television. There's just too much television to consume. What were we going to do? Have a whole library of video cassettes. And I remember we were watching, one day I was watching, I thought the show was stupid. I was a little kid, I was probably like 11. And I asked my dad, I go, why do you like this show? And he said, there's something about a song you know you'll only hear one time. And that was the truth back then. There wasn't a soundtrack for the show. It, the show simply existed at that time. Now, if it was a big hit, they may have had a soundtrack and stuff like that. But television shows weren't being released on VHS that I know of. There may have been like specials, like the Charlie Brown special, Simpsons Christmas special, things like that. But for my father, watching that show, that was the only time he'd ever hear that song in his entire life. So there is something interesting about media we can only consume once and then it's gone. Used to be the same thing before VHS. You went to go see Star Wars at the theater. Like you walked out of there and you said, whoa, that was amazing. You were never going to be able to take it home and watch it whenever you wanted to. And once the theater left, once the movie left the theater, that was it. It was gone. So there is something about media, something magical about media we can only consume one time. But so that was the longest film of the time in 1987. There are five movies now that are longer than that. Longer than three days and 15 hours. Now, I do have to say, while I was researching this topic, I was watching, in a bizarre sense of irony, I was watching a movie called Slaughter Claws. 
about a killer Santa Claus, obviously. It, it was probably one of the worst films I've seen. And I'm a collector of bad films. I love them. That's probably my favorite form of movie is an unintentionally bad film. Yes, I've seen The Room. And yes, there are multiple movies far, far worse than The Room. Slaughter Claus is one of them. But Slaughter Claus, I'm watching this movie about this killer Santa Claus. Just painfully bad editing. There's no plot. The whole movie's maybe an hour long, but it felt like it was three days and 15 hours. And this is what I came across. Fifth longest film was three days, 23 hours. It's just a picture of a photograph. And there's a boy riding a bicycle, a street, a house, garage. And over time, the image changes. But it changes over the course of three days and 23 hours. So the shift of the movement is imperceptible to the human eye. Fascinating. Four was probably the weirdest of them. Uh, fourth longest movie was called Untitled Number 125 Hickory. That movie's five days long. It is a six-minute, 30-second clip from the movie The Wizard of Oz. It's from the. It says, From the moment the viewer sees the tornado until Dorothy meets Glinda the Good Witch. It's that six-minute and 30-second clip of the movie stretched out for five days. And it, I they actually have clips of it online, like 15-minute clips at a time. It's really just a tone. You see like a blurry image, and it's like... Bum. And I think he actually did take that clip and spread it out. And apparently the five days, the reason why it's that long is that's in real time how long Dorothy spent in Oz. So that's why it's spread out that long. Third longest movie is Beijing 2003. It's six days, six hours. It's just a car driving around Beijing. Okay, that's a little bit of a letdown after the first two bizarre entries. Number two, Modern Times Forever. This one was interesting. It's 10 days long. And the movie was projected on the side of a building called the Stora Enso. The Storo Enso headquarters in Helensky. And the movie is projected on the side of the building. And what the movie is... It's what would happen to that building, how it would decay over the next few thousand years. So you're looking at the building, and over the course of 10 days, the film would change. So you'd start to see like window panes fall out, and the roof would start to kind of break down. And it just like, how, what would happen to that building over the next few thousand years? That's an interesting concept. One person said, though, why does it have to be 10 days? Couldn't you then speed the process up and make it last only one day and just make it look quicker? But I think, you know, again, it was a work of art to do that. And the longest movie blows all those away. So Modern Times was 10 days. Modern Times Forever was 10 days. This movie was 35 days and 17, 35 days and 17 hours to watch the whole thing. It's called Logistics. It was these uh, filmmakers who said, you know what? We're going to follow the production cycle of a pedometer in reverse chronological order. So they went from it being shipped to the, like, they open up the package and they find the pedometer that they ordered. And then they travel back all the way to see the pieces being sourced to make it at the manufacturer. It's all shot in real time. They open the package up and then they follow it back. The whole process it would take to make the pedometer all the way back to the factory in Shenzhen, which um, I believe is in China. Again, these are works of art, really. I don't, I think I would, if out of all of these, the Modern Times Forever would be one that I would want to see at least in bits and chunks, watching the decay of the building, because that's fascinating. But yeah, they're just works of art more than anything else. Our next story is The Life 
and times of Count Dante. Now, Count Dante, you're probably thinking, oh, you know, Cape, Transylvania, or like Europe stuff, scepter, riding a horse. No, Count Dante was actually a martial artist in the 60s and 70s of America. Very, very skilled martial artist. And what's interesting, as I was reading this story, I came to two different conclusions. And my first conclusion was totally off. My first conclusion... Okay, so let's back up here. So Count Dante was... It was an Irish guy. He wasn't actually a count. His name, his legal name was John Timothy Keenan. He was this Irish guy born in 1939. Joined the military. Really loved doing martial arts. Really into the hand-to-hand combat thing. Learned a bunch there. He was one of the guys who really helped popularize martial arts in America. Because before the 1950s, they were relatively unheard of. But what happened was, Count Dante... Well, at this time, he was still John Keenan. So John Keenan was working with some of the martial arts masters. But he started to get bored of the pomp and the circumstance that came with conventional karate. He was a skilled fighter. Now, what's funny was, and this is where I'll go back, my first conclusion when I first read about him, I thought, oh, this guy's just a blowhard. He's not a, he's just like a big marketing gimmick. He's not that good of a fighter. He resorts to dirty tricks. But is because that's kind of what the first article I read kind of seemed like. Like, he, oh, yeah, this guy said that he fought in death matches in Thailand. And I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. But the more I read about him, he actually was a skilled fighter. He was undefeated in numerous freestyle competitions. Like, he knew his stuff. And I was like, oh, this guy's actually more than just a poser. Like, he was well-respected in the martial arts community. What The reason why I, st- I started to think that it was just all an act, because he started to come up with this bizarre backstory. But first, he had to come up with an effective fighting system. He didn't like how karate was all about rules and stuff like that. He wanted to do street fighting. He wanted to do fighting that would work against assailants that were trying to mug you. So he was all about um, just explosive attacks. It was just about brutality. He wanted to hit you as hard as he could, as effectively as he could not to win the competition but to lay you out and one of the principal parts of this fight style was the dim mock or the death touch which is the fabled one punch kills you in 1967 he changed his name to count juan rafael dante he made up this entire backstory saying that his parents fled spain because they were being persecuted during the spanish civil war and they changed their names to keenan but now he's taken on his real name as Count Dante. He's a count, apparently. His new fighting system was called the Dante system, or Kata Dante. Count Dante, the deadliest man alive, was what he called himself, but he was the deadliest man alive. And the reason why he became so famous, a lot of people don't know about him today, but back then he became very famous, because he took advantage of one of the best advertising mediums at the time for his audience, and that was comic books. He posted ads in comic books in the 60s, exclaiming that he was the deadliest man alive. And yes, you, you, 14-year-old boy reading Spider-Man issue 173, you could also be the deadliest man alive. Here's the ad. Imagine you are 13, 14 years old in 1965. You open up Fantastic Four. And you see this ad. First off, it's a picture of Count Dante. He's standing there and it looks like he has a giant afro for some reason. But anyway, so here's the ad. Yes, this is the deadliest and most terrifying fighting art known to man without equal. 
Its maiming, mutilated, disfiguring, paralyzing, and crippling techniques are known only by a few people in the world. An expert at Dimok could easily kill many judo, karate, kung fu, aikido, and gung fu experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poison hand weapons. Instructing you step by step through each move in this manual is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived. Which actually, it's funny, that's a little more... Bo- there's, so now there's two claims. First off, the deadliest man alive. That's possible. The deadliest man who ever lived. Don't oversell it, Count Dante. Don't oversell it. So anyways, you're 13, you're 14, you see that ad... What is it going to be back then? A buck? You're going to have to save up three weeks to get a buck to send to this guy to get a fighting... Who's not going to do that? And even if you didn't do that, every time you open up a comic book, you find that ad in the comic book. It just became part of the cultural consciousness for that nerd culture. So he ended up forming the admittedly badass named Black Dragon Fighting Society. Now, of course, the deadliest man alive couldn't just have that title for, you know, having like a little fighting school. You also had to be kind of nuts. Now, all of this is taking place in Chicago now. Black Dragon Fighting Society, this is in Chicago. Oh, and I should say, speaking about him being nuts, he once showed up at the doorstep of Muhammad Ali and tried challenging him to a fight. He was willing to fight anybody at any time. So, and this was Muhammad Ali in his prime. So he, and of course, Muhammad Ali didn't open the door, but he would, he was trying to fight everybody that he could. And he was, like I said, a pretty good fighter. He was, he was challenging the karate masters, the martial arts masters of Chicago to just fight him. And people are like, no, I'm not going to fight you because he was nuts. Whether or not he knew the dim mock, nobody can really state. But the, or if the dim mock actually exists, but they didn't want to fight this guy. This guy, so Count Dante, at one point, Bruce Lee had just passed away, and Hollywood said, you know what, we need a new martial arts superstar. What about this Count Dante guy? He shows up in all these comic books. They flew him out from Chicago to L.A., where he proceeded to beat up the stuntmen and the other martial arts performers, injured a bunch of people, and they said, go home. He wouldn't pull his punches, even on a movie set. They're like, no, you, they, they have to shoot a movie. You can't be, like, breaking people's arms. Half the cast can't be dead. We're a franchise. We want you to do multiple movies. You'll be in jail after the first film. He also had a proclivity to getting himself into some legal trouble. One day, him and his buddy Douglas Dwyer, who was known as the second deadliest man alive, can you imagine explaining that to your date? You First off, you have to explain that you have monkey herpes. And then secondly, you have to say, yes, I am Douglas Dwyer. You can call me Dougie. I'm the second deadliest man alive. And then she is obviously going to ask, well, who's the first? I want to date the first deadliest man alive. And the guy who doesn't have monkey herpes, who wants to date the second deadliest man alive? But anyway, so Count Dante and Douglas Dwyer, the cop is walking down the street one night. And he sees these two guys supposedly dressed, I don't know, I'm going to assume they're dressed up as ninjas. But he sees these two guys outside of a dojo, a rival dojo to the Black Dragon Fighting Society. Cop's looking and he's like, what are they doing? He notices they're kind of fiddling around. Cop's like, oi, get back here. Douglas Dwyer and Count Dante go taking off down the street. They run into a dead end. 
should have been working more on that wall climbing technique. Cop arrested him. They were taping dynamite blasting caps to the dojo. They got charged with arson. Because they were trying to blow it up. They are trying to blow up a rival dojo. This guy took this stuff really, really seriously. In 1970, Count Dante had the brilliant idea. There was another rival dojo in Chicago. This, I mean, really was like a perfect time to be getting into martial arts. Because you had like that mystical side of it, like it seems so new and the, there are places everywhere. But anyways, there was another dojo that was run by the Green Dragon Society, and this was their Black Cobra Hall. So the Black Cobra Hall of the Green Dragon Society got attacked by the Black Dragon Fighting Society. Count Dante and a couple of his guys dressed up as police officers. (laughs) I mean, a bad idea from the start. Like, there's no way this is going to go right. Count Dante and a couple of his students, his buddies, dressed up as police officers, walked into the Black Cobra Hall, said, everyone, turn around. You're under arrest, and for some reason in particular. And then he hit one of them over the head with a club, like a billy club. A brawl breaks out. So imagine now you're just walking through Chicago, and you happen to look into a dojo, and you see a bunch of people in police uniforms and a bunch of people in martial arts uniforms having a full-on karate combat through the school like you're just looking through the window and you see like this huge melee and people are like doing jump kicks and crank kicks and dim mocks and all sorts of stuff if that was me i would be like i'm going to that school tomorrow i'm dropping out of all other activities i have if that is a typical thursday night for that dojo sign me up but it didn't end so happily because one of one of the black dragon fighting society guys one of count dante's men ended up stabbing and killing one of the Green Dragon Society's guys. And so it was weird because the the court basically decided that everyone was in the wrong. Even though Count Dante showed up in the police uniforms, there there might have just been a weird escalation, but basically there was seemed to be no legal repercussions for it, even though the guy died. But Count Dante did have a lawyer who was a mob lawyer who helped get him off. And oddly enough... The mob lawyer later came forward and said that Count Dante was actually the mastermind behind a $4.3 million robbery. And Count Dante ended up getting questioned for it, but passed the lie detector test. So, but that, again, that was an interesting thing. Like that could, maybe he was, maybe he was actually like a super criminal with these karate powers, which, but again, all of those details are now lost to time. Eventually he had to pass away. And he passed away through an internal hemorrhage in 1975. He was in his sleep, and a bleeding ulcer killed him. A peaceful end to a man who claimed to murder people in the ring, to a man who tried blowing up rival clubs, to a man who may have been deeply involved in the criminal underworld. But there's always been a legend that one of the martial arts masters that he was constantly taunting in the city of Chicago. All of the threats he made, all of the boasts, all of the, I want to fight you right now, and the master would go, I'm not going to fight you. There's always been a story. There's always been the story in the back streets of Chicago that one of those masters waited for his moment. 
Maybe it was on a crowded subway. Maybe it was in a restaurant. Or maybe it was when Count Dante was sleeping peacefully in his bed that one of those masters came to him and administered the dim mock. And hours later, he was dead. Even the man's death is shrouded in mystery, and I think that's just the way Count Dante would like it. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>